You are listening to What Kind of Asian Are You podcast, a podcast featuring conversations about being Asian. I am your host, Kyle, a Hong Kong Chinese Canadian diaspora interested in the third culture identity. Each week, I talk with a different diaspora Asian to talk about their life, stories, and experiences. The podcast looks to highlight, amplify, and validate Asian voices worldwide. Please stand back from the doors. Sorry to interrupt this awesome episode with this, but please make sure to follow this podcast on your streaming platform and on Instagram if you haven't already. Again, you can find the podcast by searching "What Kind of Asian Are You" podcast, and also on Instagram at "What Kind of Asian Pod." Again, it's "What Kind of Asian Pod" on Instagram. Please leave comments and reviews. I greatly appreciate them. And now back to the episode. And today I have a special guest. What she does is really impressive in terms of the visual aspects. So today I have Sophia. How are you today, Sophia? Hi, Kyle. I'm great. Thank you. Wow, I feel very chuffed by your introduction of me. But yeah, um, so like I connected through Asian Creative Network, a Facebook group that we're both in. Can you just quickly go through why you're in that group to start off yeah, with, sure. and then we'll go more in depth of like who you are, what you're about, and with your answer, I guess you can also go through like what kind of Asian are you? That main question of the podcast. So I joined Asian Creative Network around that time, like subtle Asian trait and a bunch of Asian. Um, focus groups popped up on Facebook, and I was joining all of those just to find my community a bit more. And um, when I started producing art and writing, I um, I thought, oh, I should probably find a forum for other Asians that I can connect with, that I can sort of learn from, that I can follow and get inspired by, and just make friends with. So that's how I ended up on um, that Facebook group. But before that, I really I always considered myself creative, but I was very much like a corporate boffin. <laughs> Um, for lack of a better word, before I became an artist this year, I've worn like hats in IT audit. I've done journalism. I've done crisis communications, and I really was that kind of person at university who wanted to, you know, have the big shot career as a consultant or as some sort of tech person. And I would go to like case prep training sessions. I would go to those horrible like networking events. We have to stand around and try and get business cards. And I really, really thought I had made it because when I graduated, I went to a big auditing firm and thought I could like climb my way up the ladder. But I have this disability. It's an autoimmune disability with my liver. It's called autoimmune hepatitis, and I've had that since I was 16. And I always thought, like, oh, it's fine. I can overcome it. I can do what I want despite my disability. But because I never really took care of myself, by the time I was 24, I really burnt out. I just, I was working every day of the week. I was always on call. I was always trying really hard to show that I was the best of my cohort. And I just ended up in hospital for a um. For a month, and after that, I really had to rethink what am I going to do with my life because it's clear I can't ignore my disability. It's clear that the whole narrative of like being a hustler and powering through isn't working for me realistically. So I was in the UK at this time. I moved back home to Hong Kong, where I've grown up my whole life, and I moved back in with my parents. And I sort of rebuilt and thought, what can I do that's realistic? And my mum runs an art school in Hong Kong, and I've gone there since I was a kid. And I thought, well, I've always been really interested in art, and I've never been that great at it. But I always thought, at least I like enjoy it. So I just started making art, and for Christmas, happened to get an iPad. And this was last Christmas in 2020, and so wasn't working, wasn't able to do much. Spent a lot of time in bed recovering, 
And I have a friend who's an animator and she was using Procreate, which is an app that you can make art with. So I downloaded the app and started drawing stuff. And it just became something I did every day because there wasn't much else that I could do from bed. And once I started drawing, I, I would show it to friends and they would ask me to draw profile pictures. And from there, I've managed to build in five months a business where I do a lot of corporate art and I pull on my sort of corporate experience to know what clients want. I do a lot of marketing materials. I make merchandise for companies, but then I also do my own things, which is what would be on my Instagram that you've seen, which is art and prints mainly focused around being from Hong Kong, being a woman, being disabled. And now I'm best known for this thing called the Hong Konger series, which is I take New Yorker covers, like the magazine, The New Yorker, and I adapt them to be Hong Kong themed. So I recently did one of like the Guggenheim Museum and there, it, the Guggenheim Museum in New York has loads of rings as you can go down the floors and there are people in the original cover looking at paintings. And so in mine, it's a mall and there are people on every floor of like Pacific Place or IFC, which are like very famous malls in Hong Kong, looking at designer brands. So it's sort of like tweaking the New Yorker to make it very Hong Kong specific. And I usually show them side by side so you can compare them. And yeah, my plan is eventually this year to release a book of those. But that's really fun. And that's sort of what I like to do. Half of my work is corporate, but then the other half is this artistic side where I can express my sort of love and identity with Hong Kong and Eurasian stuff. And Oh, that's great. And yeah, definitely your Hong Kong series. I saw it and it really hard for me because I could like definitely see Hong Kong and how you're talking about it, how you're describing, and you give a lot of like backstory to all the stuff you're drawing specifically about Hong Kong, which I think is great. It's a good primer for a lot of people to kind of understand Hong Kong in like a different context and show them like a, like the social side, the economic side, and all the, those kind of sides that they don't probably see if they just look at like random Hong Kong back and whatnot. And you mentioned a lot about like what you do, what you've gone through, which is great. And now with this podcast is a lot of focus on like, oh, identity and your kind of like belonging in wherever place you're from. So you kind of already mentioned like your background and stuff, but we, I want to kind of get more in depth because for those listeners that are just listening because we don't have visual, it's fair for them to think, oh, you probably is someone that are diaspora in the UK because of your British accent. <laughs> so can you just kind of give them a further kind of explainer of like, oh, your identity, like like you mentioned you're right, Eurasian, but yeah. for a lot of people, they don't really know what Eurasian mean. I think it's one of those terms that's more prevalent in like maybe uh, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, where there's a lot of colonization that had happened. Just kind of explain to the audience like what it means. Sure. So I always thought Eurasian was a really common word because like you said, um, it's like quite widely used in Hong Kong and it's deeply part of Hong Kong's history. So Eurasian is pretty much a portmanteau, like where you combine two words of European and Asian. And um, so my last name's Ho Tung. It's, um, it's kind of a Eurasian name in itself because it's rooted in the, the sort of history of colonization and um, colonial, I don't know, uh, racism mm. in Hong Kong. So um, my great, great, I want to say, yeah, my great, great grandfather was a Eurasian guy in the late 19th century. And they were very rare at the time. Basically, a Dutch merchant had, um, had a relationship with a prostitute and had um, my great, great grandfather. 
And um, this was at a time where not a lot of people would accept someone who was half Dutch, half European, half Chinese. But my great-great-grandfather, whose name was Robert, was able to, um, to be white enough to fit in with Europeans and be Chinese enough to fit in with Chinese people and use that to his advantage to sort of game the system and profit off of it, which was very mm-hmm. rare at the time. But he also found that his name, Robert, he chose that for himself. He didn't have a English name and he found that was very disadvantageous to him. So his Chinese name was Hao Dong and... Um, he Ha being his last name, which is a common last name, and um, and Dong being his first name. But he mushed those together to make a maybe German sounding like last name. No one really knows what Ho Tung is because it's a kind of fake made up name. And he would go around pretending that he wasn't that Chinese. He was just a bit of a weird looking English guy. And then he'd go around pretending he was um, he was Chinese when he needed to, um, but just looking a bit of a white Chinese guy. And um, there are loads of Eurasians now in Hong Kong. Uh, So many people are mixed race. So many people are half Asian, half white. But the word Eurasian I found isn't really widely used anywhere else Mm -hmm. because there's no history of that. So when I went to college, for example, I would tell people like people would hear my accent and I look white. I'm a very white passing Eurasian. And people would say, oh, are you from England? And yeah, kind of, because my mom is half British, half um, half Chinese, and my dad has this long history of Eurasian heritage. So I'd say, well, yeah, I'm like half British, but I'm also half Chinese. I'm Eurasian. And a lot of the time, because it's, I guess, a, a very nerdy university campus, people would think I was referring to George Orwell's novel 1984, which has like a fake country in it called Eurasia. Mm. And um, and I, I, it occurred to me that there are different words for it in the US. It, like people are called Hapa or people are called Hafi or just mixed. And um, the narrative around Eurasians is very different. So yeah, I think there are different words for it. But in Hong Kong, we use that word a lot to describe that colonial history and the roots of it. And for those that are not in tune with like Hong Kong history, your great great grandfather played a lot, a huge part in like the makeup of how Hong Kong became Hong Kong in the sense where he was a big businessman and he ended up doing a lot of like charity stuff as well in British Hong Kong. Yeah, so there's a company in Hong Kong called Jardine Matheson. Mm-hmm. Jardine's Matheson, it's a, um, it's like a holdings company. You go into Starbucks, you, you go into like a lot pizza hut, it's owned by Jardine's. And so early, early days, 19th century, early 20th century, he was a comprador which is basically a sort of go-between between the very local merchants and the sort of fuddy-duddy colonial white, which is perfect for someone who can cross those cultures. Yeah. So that was his job. He's a bit of a sketchy guy. Like, he didn't get this far without being a little mm-hmm. bit sketchy. The exploitation of local Hong Kongers really, like, he was not... He went for it and helped with that and definitely wasn't sort of helping out his fellow Hong Konger in that sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was he was a polygamist. I've got like two great great grandmothers because he had two wives. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's he's a classic 19th century guy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, he really paved the way for um, being mixed race to be accepted in Hong Kong which I'm grateful for. And so in my, my family's huge. He had a lot of kids mm-hmm. and they all had a lot of kids. So there are loads of us and we all are varying degrees of Eurasian. Some parts of my family, we go and we have like a Chinese banquet. Another side of my family will go and we'll have like a roast Christmas dinner with Yorkshire puddings because they're like super British. But it's great. And I think that's what's nice about being Eurasian. And especially coming from a big Eurasian family, you have every sort of like degree of Asianness or whiteness on a spectrum and nothing's weird. Nothing's like, like, um, we'll play mahjong and eat 
uh, Viennetta cake. Viennetta mm. being like a really British sort of like cheap freezer food, but we're playing like a really traditional Chinese game. So you had the experience where there was no kind of leaning towards one culture or the other, where a lot of people like in the diaspora for Asians are like they're often kind of like you have to pick a side kind of thing. Definitely, and I think like I talked to my. Eurasian or like、uh, halfy friends who grew up in the states or grew up in like Western cultures, and there's a lot of pressure to be white just because it's lonely to be a bit culturally different. But I never felt I never felt white, but I never felt Chinese. I always identified with being Eurasian because I had so many friends who were in a similar position as me. I wasn't unique in the fact, like I wasn't the mixed kid in my class. There were so many of us that some that like we wouldn't know what was Chinese, we wouldn't know what was British. We just sort of Did stuff, and there are like funny things. Like、um, in Chinese culture, it's quite—I think it's well—I've been told it's quite rude to open gifts in front of the person that gives it to you.、Mm. But in Western culture, you will open it in front of them and show them you appreciate it. And I just remember like having no idea which one was which and which like culture goes with which one. And but at the same time, no one would be like, "Oh my god, that's such an Asian thing to do," or "Oh my god, that's such a like Western thing to do," because. It's so ubiquitous to see Eurasians around and to exist in this like mixed culture. And I think Hong Kong is pretty Eurasian as well as a city. You look at it; you've got very, very traditionally colonial buildings. You look at the buses, and they're based on like London buses because that's what was introduced during、um, in, like Great Britain's reign. So, as people, we reflect the city, and it's not as weird to be. You're not different. It's not as weird to be mixed. Yeah, for sure. And I think people, when they think of Hong Kong, they always say, "Oh, like, yeah, it's a, a a blend of like Western and Eastern culture," and which is for sure. But they don't realize how deep it is, like the the history of it. And of course, like you could always say, "Oh, it's, it started off as not such great of a thing," but then with how Hong Kong is, they adapt and they make things their own, and now it it is what it is. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And talking about like. Mixing of like different culture and stuff. So you mentioned, oh, you never got like any feeling of not being like one or the other. You were like a mix, and you didn't feel like awkward. So in terms of your own identity being Eurasian, it's still kind of weird, I guess, for you because being Eurasian in Hong Kong, you're still not technically a majority. So how do you see yourself in Hong Kong and the whole identity kind of side of things? Yeah, I think there's. There's definitely a difference between how I see slash saw myself versus how other people see me.、Um, so I remember the first time I realized that other people saw me differently from how I saw myself was when I was about thirteen. I was with like a friend of mine, and you know we're like thirteen year olds running around, and、um, her shoe broke. She was wearing like flip flops. Her shoe broke, and we had to go buy super glue. And there was a woman at a kiosk, like a local Chinese lady at a kiosk, and. I said, "Oh, go ask her," because my Cantonese is pretty bad. So I was like, "Go ask her if she like sells superglue." And my friend said, "No, you go ask. You're white." And I was just thrown. I had no idea what that meant. And my friend, she is Singaporean Chinese, and、um, I was like, "Whoa, wait, what do you mean I'm white?" She was like, "You're white." She'll like think you're sort of like more more serious. And I, was, and I just thought that was the weirdest logic. But also was like, "I'm not white. I'm Eurasian." But then I realized, yeah, I'm actually I'm white. I look completely white to people who don't know how to recognize Eurasian. And then like I went to the UK. I went to America after that. To study, and I was like, "Oh yeah, people definitely think I'm white." And so, when it comes to being in Hong Kong, I look like an expat. An expat 
being um they're like glorified immigrants expats are basically white people immigrants but white people never like to be called immigrants so they insist on being called expats but there's an a huge expat culture in hong kong where they're often not really integrated into local like hong kong life they sort of mm. live within hong yeah. kong island away from kowloon which is more sort of local and um it's very easy for me to get sucked up into like the expat sort of life like people will sort of just assume i'm an expat and assume i know expat things when i really don't feel like i'm that part of it i'm not as british as them do you feel kind of annoyed or like uh, get offended by I it? used to <laughs> yeah because to be honest it's hard for for me at least to kind of think of you as an expat at all because your family has been in Hong Kong for generations and generations more than a lot of other people in yeah. Hong Kong for sure I no mean, doubt so <laughs> for them to think of you as an expat that's kind of ridiculous yeah I mean like I used to get really annoyed like I'd have friends who would um who would sort of write me off as being so white I wouldn't know where like places were if they were in Kowloon and I live in Kowloon so I'm like okay I'm not that white but at the same time I think when people sort of write me off as being white it's really important to contextualize when they do it so if someone's just like assuming I'm white and it's to highlight the fact that I don't understand what it is like to look Asian and experience Asian discrimination. That's a completely valid thing for them to flag. It's like, I I really benefit off of white privilege. I um, Police have not, like the police have stopped my friends and not me because they don't want to speak English in Hong Kong because it's like, mm, they don't want to have yes. to translate in the head. And I've never done anything that bad, but I, I've definitely like sped while driving and people have seen it's me driving and the police haven't stopped me because they don't want to, you know, yell at me in English I definitely benefit from it so when people flag that that's very real and I like really try to check my privilege with that but then at the same time when people like speak about me in Chinese and I understand I do get a bit like like a part of me is like he 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 I know what they're saying and I can do whatever like I used to be part of a badminton team at school and we were in England I went to boarding school in England for a bit and we were all from Hong Kong in this badminton team but no one knew I was so they'd like talk about how bad I was at playing which was valid I was a very bad player but at the same time I was like I can understand you. So it depends. I used to get a lot more annoyed that people would deny me my Eurasian identity. But when it comes to, if people are just being mean and catty, then like, oh, whatever. But at the same time, if they're actually flagging something that is important, like I can use my my sort of white passing appearance to help the Asian community, then of course, like, yeah, I on the surf, like on the surface, I look like a white person. And I've heard what people say about Asians when they don't think I'm Asian. I've like, it's a real thing. And I really try to use that position to, you know, uplift and not uh, perpetuate the exploitation and the, mm. like, you know, violence towards Asian people. That's great. But I'm just curious now, because like, I would never get that experience because I'm Asian, I'm Chinese and whatnot. But what's the worst thing they will have told you just because they think, oh, you're white. So then whatever they say, you will be like, ha ha ha, yeah, it's true. And all that stuff. When if only they knew like, oh, you're not only white, but you're also Asian. I mean, this is the thing. Nothing that bad comes to mind. Like, like the sort of plight of being a white looking Asian person is so not a plight. It's so like my worst thing, honestly, I, I can't even think nothing that bad has happened to me. That's how privileged like it is. Like thinking of badminton, they sometimes try and change the score. So they They'd be like, pretend we have two more points than we actually do. And I'd be like, I can hear you. Um, but like, sometimes it's a bit like I have friends who I'm really, really close to who will try and sometimes like will leave me out of 
out of things because they think I'm too white to do something. Like I remember we did an escape room once and my, my Mandarin is better than my Chinese, than my Cantonese. Cantonese being the language spoken in Hong Kong, Mandarin being the language spoken across the rest of China, but the writing is similar so I can read. And, um, and I remember a small discussion going on like, well, is Sophia going to be any use to us in this escape room because she's um <laughs> she does not going to read anything and yeah like my Chinese isn't mm. great to read riddles but it was like come on give me a shot it's good enough but as you can tell I'm having a really difficult time thinking of like the worst thing that's happened to me because if your biggest problem is looking white you you're fine <laughs> yeah I actually was wondering in terms of like what other white people have said to you oh right of, like, okay Asians. okay yeah. yeah other white oh god I mean like I had a picture one I was using as a bookmark of me and my grandma who's 100% Shanghainese and someone was once like mm. oh my god that's a terrible waxwork of Jackie Chan and I got so angry oh, I've had my. a lot of people like make fun of my grandma she um like she's she was hilarious she'd come to um she was like loud and yappy, uh, but really, really sweet. And mm. I remember once I was in a school play. I was about 13 years old. I was in a school play. She drove two hours to come see me. And um, she was the only fam family member that could come. So I was super excited to see her. And at the end of the play, someone came into the dressing room and was like, Oi, Sophia, some old Chinese lady wants to see you. And I was just like, she's not an old Chinese lady. I just, I just never really thought of her as like obviously she is an old Chinese lady but then so I went yeah. out and um and I said hi and stuff like that and um and the next morning we were at breakfast because it was boarding school and the person who had like told me to go out to see my grandma they were like yeah I didn't know if I should like send her away she looked really sketchy she looked like she was gonna kidnap you and I just I just like felt really upset by that because she doesn't look sketchy she doesn't she's like you know she's not even that old a wizard she was very like athletic and wasn't she she was just a perfectly nice Chinese lady there was nothing weird about her and for some you know snotty little 13 year old British kid to say this stuff I just I was very confused and I think when I was 13 I didn't know how to verbalize it and I didn't pinpoint it as it being racist I think I just took it more personally as like they thought I was dumb and therefore anyone associated with me was dumb but I do notice a lot of people writing off like Chinese people or thinking that Chinese people are submissive or weird or not smart or not outspoken. And I've been in classes at college and stuff where if you're Chinese and not speaking, people immediately think they, that you don't speak English. And it's like, how do you think you got into this university without speaking English there? And to be a fly on mm -hmm. the wall of like, um, you know, of club meetings where we're talking about who to let into the club of any sort of place where people are talking about other people whether it's just casually or it's for like a club or a business or a class there is always this assumption that the sort of quiet Asian is this stereotype when usually it's just a normal person who was as quiet as everyone else but everyone else is white and doesn't get that stigma attached to them so I I don't know I try to flag when these stereotypes pop up I try to also I don't think necessarily making myself the the, uh, the f focus of attention like I don't think me going well I'm actually Asian and therefore like that's not helpful mm. it's more just like take yeah. it away from me and my whatever my identity issues and just call out nicely that just because someone is quiet and Asian doesn't mean that they're any of the other things that you would extrapolate out of that
And just because there's a woman who looks different from you waiting outside like the school gym after a show doesn't mean she's a kidnapper. Like that's the sort of stuff. Mm. It's the stereotyping that I think is the most prevalent sort of racism I hear as a fly on the wall. Okay, that's interesting. And it makes sense. And I guess for you being Eurasian, being in like spaces where things like this could happen, I guess for you, like having grown up, having to deal with all this, you're now kind of more aware of what to do and how to kind of just stand up for yourself and also the people that you want to protect and such. What did you say? So Yeah, but it's taken me a long time to not, I think as a teenager, I was a little bit more focused on my identity. So it didn't occur to me that like, like there are bigger problems at hand than people mistaking you for this or that. And so I do feel like I have to make up for like the, like just not recognizing my own sort of privilege and my own, like the things I've been able to achieve because of my name and my face and like my accent, I think. Like on the phone, people people like never assume I'm Asian because I sound British as hell. Um, so yeah, I think I do, I'm a bit like overly sensitive to it just because there's like partial guilt, partial making up for lost time. Mm. But at the same time, I think it's good to be aware of these things and it's good to do what you can yeah. to uplift other people in the community, especially now when things mm. are so contentious. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing and I could definitely see it in your work and see like what you're trying, to, the message you have of every kind of piece of work you do that's always about like trying to educate, trying to like give people like more to think about and provide awareness to those issues that I don't think a lot of people are aware yeah. of. And it's always nice because you don't expect that, well, being someone who was born in Hong Kong, but then immigrated later, but I still have like close connections to mm -hmm. Hong Kong. It's always where I often have to see like, oh, either a white expat doing X, Y, and Z in Hong Kong that like you want to like give them the benefit of the doubt, but they end up disappointing you somehow doing some sort of thing. Or like you just see a lot like white people in Hong Kong in general where you often see them, oh, they're very quick to like just throw Hong Kong under the bus or like always with the mentality, oh, we could always just go back to the home yeah. country, wherever they yeah, are. Definitely. But I also like going off what you said about the, the Hong Kong are sort of trying to provide more angles to Hong Kong. I think like in, in recent years, because of the protests, because of being one of the first places to, you know, really deal with COVID, there's been a lot of sort of stigma about Hong Kong. It's like super expensive to live here. We protest, mm -hmm. we are, we like, when you Wuhan, which started the virus, like there's a lot of stuff about Hong Kong that people assume. And so with this Hong Konger series specifically, I've been trying to focus on different angles that often don't get talked about, whether it's like women at work in Hong Kong, what does that mean? Very niche things like a specific fishing village. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just important to highlight that there are, of course, these massive issues going on, but the way Hong Kong has shaped itself and grown with its sort of spotted history is a lot more nuanced and there are really lovely, beautiful things about it as well as dodgy, corrupt, scary things about it. Yeah. Like with all your like material, I could see like, you really love Hong Kong and like all the, all the effort you put into it. It's really, I, I could feel very kind of like inspired from just what you do. Cause it's, it's those things that I feel like the more that's out there, I feel like more people can feel connected to Hong Kong, appreciate more and respect yeah. it more. And we talked a lot about like your background, your identity and stuff, but now I kind of want to talk more about like your, your creativity and like 
your art and your writing. So in terms of all your kind of creative stuff, you mentioned like you never really thought like you were like really, really creative. Why did you feel that? Because I feel like it seems like you grew up in a rare creative environment and all that yeah, stuff. I, I thought I was creative. I just never thought I had the skill. Like I had a lot of enthusiasm for making stuff. And I think I'm like ever since I was a kid, I've always been happiest making things. So my mom, like, as I mentioned, my mom runs this art school in Hong Kong called Kids Gallery. And she started it in 96. So I was two years old when she started it. And mm -hmm. basically in the beginning, it was like one studio. Then it became like, like three studios. And now it's like a proper, it's, I think it's its 25th anniversary coming up. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's like it, when it was, you know, a baby in the 90s and in the 2000s and I was in elementary school, my mum would basically, you know, she let us do classes we want to do. But if there was only one other kid in like a painting class and she needed it to look popular, she'd throw me and my sister in there and be like, today you're doing Chinese brush painting until this class fills up and has real children in it. So a lot of that's a good business strategy yeah and she would like make us do all these classes so we were like guinea pigs she'd be like what do you think of this was it fun yes okay great well how would you improve it and you know we're seven and nine so we're like it was boring but well, it was <laughs> lots of fun so um she basically guinea pig tested us through all these arts classes you know we thought they were fun we loved them and it just made us really creative but also I was just never good at stuff I was I was like always drawing stuff that looked a bit not right or I would like get up on stage and perform because it was like all sorts of arts like performing arts visual arts and I was never like the best kid on stage but I was enthusiastic and so um but the thing is kids gallery never graded you it was never about like who was mm. the best kid no one put like the best piece of art up on the wall and pointed at it like it was just this great place where there was no pressure to be the best and you That's just great. had fun so you know factor in well I left Hong Kong to go to boarding school when I was 11. So factor in nine years of that. And it really set the foundation for me to not be afraid to be creative or try new things, um, but also feel like there was no pressure to be good at stuff. And so when I look back at like the things I've created, a lot of it isn't great in the sense of like, you look at it and you're like, that is the best podcast I've ever listened to. That's the best piece of art I've ever listened to. But I'm really a believer in like, just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And if you do it enough, then you'll get better. And I like I look at some of the first pieces of art I did on my iPad and they're horrible, but you know, I really enjoyed making them and I thought they were good at the time. And I'm sure I'm going to look back at like what I'm making now and in a year, thank God that was so technically terrible. But I really feel very liberated by art and by creating. And it's not, I was never really like a technically good artist. I think a lot of my, um, a lot of my value as an artist comes from what I think up. And then how like my hand translates it isn't always great, but it's more the idea behind it that was the good part. But I've, I consider myself a writer as well. And I think that I've always been able to do like good creative writing because of that environment I grew up in. I'm, I'm like a musician as well. I play the guitar and the tuba. And, you know, I've like tried my hand at music production. And I think that being able to dabble and have the opportunity to just under no pressure make things and enjoy it and not be graded on it has enabled me to do this project now which is start an art business and who knows how long I'll do this for but I as long as I'm creating stuff I'm happy and if I can make money off it then great so your mom is this kind of art gallery owner founder and such 
So of course she's really into art. So she would naturally push you, kind of be more creative and stuff. But she never really gave you the idea. Oh, you're actually good at it, or anything like that, or just encourage you to like keep pursuing it, or anything like that. Or it's just oh, we just let you go free in terms of being creative and do all the creative <laughs> stuff you want, but not necessarily telling you you're really good at it to let you know oh, it's something you could consider doing. Yeah, I mean, so my my mom's an interesting character because she runs art schools, so people think she's like one of those women with a long skirt and long hair and like covered in paint. My mum is like a businesswoman. She is a tiger <laughs> mum and a businesswoman, and her whole ethos is. You can teach kids to be creative, but she's not one of those women who's like follow your passion. And she、mm. was very key. Like I had a phase when I was seventeen where I wanted to study medicine. She loved that. She loved the idea of me being a doctor. Like for a while, I was like maybe I'll be a lawyer. She loved that.、Um, I was gonna. I, my original major was computer science. She loved that. And then I came out of college with an English degree. And she's always been.、Um, she's always been not pushy in like the. She like beat me with a ruler if I was bad at piano, but you know she like made me do piano lessons. She made me do like ballet so I'd have good posture. She was very strict on like homework, and she really wanted me and my sister to get good degrees and to you know be able to support ourselves. And I don't think she ever saw art as something that you know profitable to support yourself with. But at the same time. She really believed in being creative. She didn't want to have two kids who were like robots that couldn't think outside of the box and didn't have any hobbies. And so, I think when she, you know, raised us, she was like, "Go for it. Have as many hobbies as you want. Make yourself a well-rounded person. Have stuff to talk about. Like, you know, be able to have skills. But also, you got to make money at some point. And so, I think that's a great mix.、Uh, sometimes I felt a lot of pressure, and I think、uh, like one of the worst things about being disabled is I equate my value so tightly to being productive and generating stuff. And when you just like sometimes my muscles don't work, so when I can't make anything, it's like, well, what's my value? And that's like maybe a very Asian thing.、Um, but but yeah, I think like disability aside, she had it. She hit the nail on the head with a right balance. She's not too wishy-washy, but she's not too, you know, draconian.、Mm, that's great. And talking about just like finding that like like switch where it goes from where you thought like oh all your self worth is through kind of being able to produce to be efficient and all that stuff. What at what point can you like pinpoint where you thought oh actually it's not like that? Is it only Because of the fact that you were going through a period where you were really sick, and then you're like, "Oh, now it clicked. Like, oh, it doesn't mean anything. All it should be is like, I'm happy, I'm fulfilled, and I get to do what I want, and I'm still healthy and able to do things I want." Yeah, I mean, like, I cycled a lot. Like, it took me about three years to really cycle through burning out and then getting better and like going full steam ahead again. Like, um, my first sort of real burnout where. Things were like looking pretty, like very, very bad for me. Was in my final year of college, and、um, I was in hospital. I had to miss all my finals, my full semester, and、um, and when they when I left hospital, my mentality was like, okay, I gotta like it's my it's my final semester. I gotta pull it out of the bag. I gotta get back next semester, do my do all my exams that I missed, and I gotta graduate, and、um, and I just. Pushed and pushed, and I like I did it all, and I was really, really. I had a great spring semester, 
But then I spent the summer just completely exhausted. Just like, you know, after you sprint, you need that recovery period. So I had the summer and then I had to start my job at like an accounting firm with like training and like a lot of rigor. And so I did three months of that and then burnt out again. And was like, oh my God, okay, I got to get myself. So I started like exercising and I tried to make, I thought if I ate healthily or was vegetarian, I'd, I'd do something different with my lifestyle, I'd be better. So then I started my next job. And by that time, my body was like, it's been two years of this horrible starting and stopping. You can't sustain this. And then I was in hospital for a month. And at that point, my family was like, you need to come home. You can't sustain this. And even then, like hospital for a month, you'd think would change you. Mm -hmm. But I was like, okay, no, I've had a month. I've been in hospital. Now I got to like, now I got, now I'm good. And I remember the doctor telling me at the time, this was in May, 2019, the doctor who was in the hospital seeing me said, you're going to need 18 months. And I was 24 and I thought in 18 months, I'll be 26. I'm not going to just relax for a year and a half. That's not happening. I've got a career to do. I yeah. graduated. Da, da, da. So, you know, it's, and then a year passes. I'm in hospital again, same time next year. I'm in hospital again, six months later. It was a really, really long time for me to suddenly just be like, and honestly, I think what happened was I couldn't walk anymore. I was so, I just kept collecting diagnoses. I ended up with like six different diseases, four autoimmune diseases, a bone disease. Like, and I was just like, oh my God, I'm not able, like I'm really killing myself. And what for? And, and at that point I just thought, okay, well, I've been pushing myself to sort of have value and make money and build a resume and like look good on LinkedIn. Now I can't walk. So what's the deal? Like, what am I going to see value in myself if everything is about getting back into the workforce? And, you know, for, for a while, for a few months that I was just like, well, I have no value. Why do I exist if I'm just, you know, someone who needs to like rely on everyone to bring me food and like take me to the bathroom and wash my hair? What is the point and um and honestly I don't know the answer because people will be like well you have a great presence in like people's lives you make people happy but like if we're being really fatalistic sometimes that's not enough for a person mm -hmm. like when you're alone in a room and not making people happy does that mean you don't have value anymore and so you know in bed not able to move thinking all these big thoughts I think the thing that pulled me out of it was just being like by being so grumpy and fatalistic you're not helping anyone by pushing yourself and pushing yourself you're just perpetuating the cycle and there's like there are a lot of sort of books and there's like a buddhist mentality about this where the moment you stop caring things start happening so the moment you stop like faffing around trying to fix stuff it fixes itself yeah. and i really felt like as not as soon it took a while it took a really long time when i stopped caring so much and when it stopped being such a point of anxiety for me to get out of bed and be useful, I started to feel like things, like I, I had value and I had meaning. And um, like, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, but that was like a book, that's sort of a pop, a popular science book that takes a Buddhist sort of mentality of like, everything is impermanent, you shouldn't hold on to anything mm -hmm. and you just have to accept whatever comes. And acceptance, I think, is something that is, I hate that word because it, you have no idea how to implement it. You have no idea how to execute true acceptance. It just sort of comes one day really slowly. And then the next day it'll go away. But then the day after it'll come back a little bit more strongly. And it's really that 
it's really a case of being patient. Mm. And the moment you stop trying, it's like flapping around in quicksand. You end up fixing things just by, by being still. It seems like you kind of gone through that kind of journey. Now you have a more clear head of like your value and your worth. So what's important to you? A part of me, which I really try not to focus on, when I get like a Facebook like, it's, it's mm. very, very basic. But when I'm like, I get a Facebook like, I'm like, yeah. Or if someone emails me and wants a commission, I'm like, yeah, value. But then my my like proper mature brain kicks in and they're like, and my brain's like, no, that's not where you should be getting value from. I think it's super counterintuitive. But if I can feel happy without anyone liking my stuff, Mm. then that is then that is the thing that keeps me going because then I know I'm doing it for me like I make um me and my friends we make a podcast that's not great it's a disaster it's um we make up a crime novel and read it out and it's always confusing and the quality isn't great and you know not a lot of people listen to it I think the three people that listen to it are the three people that make it but it's the fact that I try not to tie any sort of sense of success to it's analytics. I think Mm. once you start measuring stuff and it becomes less about how happy you are creating it and more about how happy you make other people, then you start feeling pressure because once you stop being of service to other people, you suddenly feel like you have no value. But Mm. there is like, it's a very tricky thing to talk about because it sounds selfish, like to prioritize like, oh, well, if you don't care about helping other people, then you're just a selfish person. Mm -hmm. But it really isn't about that because I am of no help to people if I am if I can't walk if I need like someone to help mm-hmm. me bathe if yeah. I need someone to cook for me all the time so it's like this the word self-care like gets really bandied around and it's lost a lot of its meaning but I really train myself and practice with myself to feel the most value when I'm just doing stuff that makes me happy and if it benefits other people great and if I can't do it, I should still like just be glad I did it when I could. And I like I aspire to sort of stillness and just being OK with whatever I have, because mm. like I'm so used to the cycle of suddenly waking up and not being able to walk. And I know that's a super unsatisfying answer. It's so foggy I don't really know I'm still trying to figure it out and I think it's one of those things where you'll never be able to put your finger on it it's different for everyone and Mm -hmm. no one's ever going to properly achieve it but as long as you register that certain things like increases in salary a promotion Facebook likes more followers if you recognize like it's great to get excited about it but don't make that your whole thing Mm -hmm. because it's going to get disappointing when you lose it I think that's like how I approach stuff now. Yeah, I think I agree on like your whole perspective on it. And for me, like I put it a lot of like, if I can provide value for others, but I think that's almost kind of dangerous to a point where if I don't get like, oh, affirmations from people, let's just say for this podcast, like, oh, they reach out to me saying, oh, it really helped me or like, I really like this episode. Then what? Am I not gonna be like worth anything if I no one cares? But yeah. that shouldn't be the way I kind of assess. But I think for now, for me, in terms of my kind of understanding what value I can bring to to others or just what I find is value to me is just being able to help others or like use what I have to, you know, bring happiness or fulfillment or just, you know, value to people. And I think everyone has their own kind of way to deal with this kind of issue and um, there's no right answer. And yeah, that's one of the things you can't 
you can't like tell someone this is what you got to think and then they'll suddenly be like ah yeah I got it thanks it's not like teaching math where you suddenly like understand you really have to figure it out for yourself and usually you figure it out through a very roundabout way that takes ages and it'll be something you read that didn't work for anyone else or it'll be like a movie you see that didn't like work for anyone else but it's one of those things that you can't teach people. You can't just like get people on board with a conversation. It really has to be something you figure out based on your own experience, which makes it so hard to talk about because when it comes to you, it's usually super wishy-washy and happened over a really long period of time. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head with how um, it's really like a very personal experience. And I'm super type A. I'm like one of those pretty no BS people. So when I hear stuff about being Zen or meditating or like acceptance, I'm like, oh, no, how do I get this done quickly? Like I'm a systems person. I'm like an Excel person. So it's just it's really not compatible with my personality. But at the end of the day, you run out of options and it Mm -hmm. works. And I I came to this in a very like in a very methodical way. But that's because it's my personality and it'll be different for other people. Yeah, this whole conversation has been really good. And I'm really glad we had that talk because I think we don't really talk enough about like our value or how do we gain acceptance of like, oh, our self-worth through other things. And I think it's a very important conversation to have. And yeah. I, I want to circle back to like your art because I think it's such a great thing. I really enjoy the content. <laughs> And I just want to know the process because there's a lot of thought I'm sure you put into it because it's not just you recreating New New Yorker cover and kind of making it a more Hong Kong theme because you do a lot of research behind it as well. So I want to know the process. Like, is it the idea comes first and then you look for that New Yorker cover to kind of rip, not rip, but like go through and kind of modify? Yeah. So what it usually is, is um, I will look through New Yorker covers. So like on, like I'll go on Pinterest, I'll go on like the Condé Nast website and I'll look at New Yorker covers and usually things will jump out at me that I see. Like there was a picture I posted recently of a cover where two white ladies are sort of looking at a Native American wearing a headdress and wearing traditional Mm -hmm. clothes. And they're like being really sort of obnoxious and, and racist about it and being like, oh, how pretty and kind of ignoring the sort of significance of his dress. And just because of complete happenstance, I saw a picture of the Empress Dowager Suti, Suti, yeah, recently. And she's always got like massive crowns and headwear, headgear yeah. on. So I was like, oh, that looks a lot like Suti. And so I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, I'll just start. I'll find a picture of her. I'll like change the ladies up a bit to make them a bit more modern. And then usually, because it takes me about a day to two days to make them. And so when I'm making them, ideas start coming to mind. And I start thinking about like, ooh, what should I put in the background that would be symbolic? What's symbolic about what she's wearing? And so the idea for the essay that usually accompanies the piece of work comes as I make it. And then I start to like Google around and research and think about stuff. So um, sometimes they can be quite personal. Like one of them was about, Chinese food and there's this massive spread of um, mapo tofu and there's like abalone and weird dim sum and like a fish with its head and then this little Eurasian sort of four-year-old looking at it and out of her head is a little uh, speech like thought bubble of McDonald's like packaging like Mm -hmm. a happy meal and that was based on a New Yorker cover where there's a cat looking at like this whole spread of delicious jellies and cakes and foods and he's thinking of a fish and so um And so that one was very personal because it was about like 
when people already think you're white because you're Eurasian and you don't like food that is traditionally Chinese and is considered like very local food, does that make you less of an authentic Asian or are you entitled to your own opinion and is that separate from your race? So that was like a personal essay. Others, like um, I did one on the history of women workers in Hong Kong yeah. and it starts mm -hmm. in like, I think 1912 or something and goes into the future. And um, I talk about like my great, great aunt who was a, um, or my great aunt who was a, like a doctor before women were really doctors in Hong Kong. I talk about my grandma, uh, the one who, um, who showed up to my performance and how she was a secretary and how she had to like deal with gross lascivious white dudes hitting on her while she was trying to work. Um, and so that required like more research about the history of Hong Kong and stuff like that. But the ideas really come for the essay as I'm working on the piece of art. Usually there's a component of the original New York cover that I see and that I want to bring out and subvert to make Hong Kong styled. Occasionally I'll be like, I really want to do one about like Tai O Fishing Village and I'll go and find something. Or I really want to do one about Domestic Helper because I haven't done one yet. And I think that they're like the backbone of Hong Kong that never really get talked about. For sure, yeah. in, um, or like they get talked about, but not sort of lauded in the way they should. Mm -hmm. And I just want, I want to make a few, but I need to find like good prints. So sometimes I'll go in yeah. looking at prints, looking at the New Yorker covers mm -hmm. with an idea in mind, but I wait and I try and think about how I'm going to do it respectfully and yeah. meaningfully. And often what I do is that is I think about a lot of the time domestic helpers replace the role of mothers. So especially mm. during Mother's Day, I was looking yeah. at a lot of mother covers and seeing if I could adapt some of those for domestic mm -hmm. help. Talking about like your kind of project with like the, the covers, what's the ultimate goal with it? Like, of course, like, oh, if you're able to make money from doing it, awesome. But like, what's the biggest message you want to have with that project specifically when people see it? Yeah, I think, it like to put Hong Kong more on the map as a as less of like this protest zone and less of this has been city and highlight both its history but also its potential and its flaws and it like some of them are quite critical of Hong Kong some of these prints and then others sort of celebrate Hong Kong they celebrate different people and different cultures within it or like weird habits we have um so I think it's to portray an authentic depiction of Hong Kong that isn't entirely one thing. It's not a piece of Hong Kong propaganda that's just like the greatest city in the world. It's mm -hmm. not a piece of um, satire. It's not necessarily um, a critique. It's showing everything, all those and more, while also providing like, ideally at the end of the year, I'll publish them in a book. And then each book will have these essays in them. And the essays will be fleshed out more and obviously edited because, you know, right now they're just on Instagram posts. But you, you know, you could buy it and read the stories. You could buy it and look at the nice prints. You can, um, you can sort of take what you want out of it. And I think as long as I'm spreading awareness for Hong Kong in a time where its identity is really in flux, I think that's a meaningful project. And if I can, you know, sell prints and sell books, then great. But that's really not my focus right now. I think I'm fortunate enough to live at home and not pay rent. I can really make art that is meaningful as first and then profitable second. That's awesome. And have you mentioned a lot about your art? How about your writing? In terms of writing, what kind of topics that you want to keep writing about and kind of put more spotlight on? Like, I yeah. assume it's more about like, oh, um, gender, um, living in Hong Kong, Eurasian, and just your um, 
experience with disability. Is there anything else you want to cover as well? Usually, well, I started off writing more fiction than I did nonfiction. So, mm. um, so I publish like short stories a lot. I, um, I, you know, I do the whole sort of starving writer thing where I send off to literary agents and publishing houses and, um, and hope that they read stuff from their slush piles. Uh, recently, I sort of have been blogging more. And that's something I always felt a bit self-conscious about because it's quite personal to blog and it's you look conceited sometimes blogging about yourself but whatever but I haven't done many blog posts and I try to only do them when I feel like I have something to say I don't really want to churn stuff out just because it's a Thursday and we do blog posts on Thursdays so I've written two and both of them to highlight things that are quite close to my heart one of them was about being disabled and being specifically being chronically ill which means you're just going to be ill forever and how to sort of talk about that, because a lot of the time being ill is centered around getting better. And sometimes when you don't get better, it's like, well, what do you say to that? That's really mm-hmm. grim. So yeah, uh, writing about disability and the other ones about gender and like some fun texts I get from guys, some of them very rude and creepy. Um, so yeah, when I write nonfiction, I write about gender and disability a lot. And then through my Hong Konger covers, I write about like being Eurasian or from Hong Kong. In my fiction, I tend to write like not necessarily sci-fi like there aren't aliens and stuff but I usually I'm inspired by like that sort of black mirror vibe I try to bring tech into conversations about gender and equality and um and I think fiction is another way to frame the issues I write about in my blog and in my through my art in a more insidious way to get people to listen because I find that if you're not disabled you're not really going to be that invested in reading Mm -hmm. like a whole article about being disabled if you're not a woman you're not really going to be like that into learning about women's plights through a blog post so I use my fiction a little bit more sneakily to reel people in who might not necessarily decide to read articles about things that aren't really that applicable to them this just came randomly to me is like despite like being eurasian being hong kong where you're not necessarily like the majority but then at the same time you feel very accustomed to the eastern side and also western side i feel like you're really well accustomed to like oh being in the middle and embracing both sides do you have any tips on that because a lot of my listeners are probably in america in the west where they are struggling kind of figuring out how to like be Eastern and Western at the same time without really feeling lost. Like, do you have any tips for that? I mean, full disclaimer, I always feel too white. I always feel like Mm. I, I like I, I've got a drug, which is a steroid and it makes your face quite fat. And a lot more people believe I'm Asian when my face is rounder because that's just like stereotypical of a more Asian looking face. And I love that because I just wish I looked more Asian sometimes, which is, a Mm. you know, a weird, confusing thing to say. And, you know, we can go into all sorts of kind of like, is that racist of me? But um, but I think like I wish my Chinese was better. I wish I knew like all the Cantonese slang. I wish like I, I was able to I have one of my autoimmune diseases is celiac disease, which means I can't eat soy sauce, which means I can't eat like half the things at a Chinese restaurant, yeah. which makes me feel really white. So it's like I I'm not like there are parts of me that are not comfortable with the fact that I feel whiter than I am Asian when I want to be equally both. But it comes down to like, what healthy for you? What do you enjoy? Like, what do you like? If you don't like eating that food, then don't eat that food. If you really want to eat like a bala bar, go find a gluten-free bala bar that you can eat. Um, So when it comes to like being 
accepting of your Eurasian identity, I think the first part is acknowledging that you aren't happy sometimes with your how white you are or if you're too Asian, too, how Asian you are and acknowledging that like, yeah, you're not 50-50 or you're not 100 if you want to be 100 or not, but whatever you choose to be and whatever you are is fine. It goes back to like, not that many people are caring about it. Not that many people are measuring you by how Asian you are or how white you are all the time. And even if they are, it's not necessarily your problem if it sounds awful because I don't want to say like don't let it be your problem because obviously things especially if your parents are concerned you're not Asian enough or you're being too whitewashed it's really really difficult to not care but at the same time if you don't want to like delve into learning Chinese calligraphy and Chinese history and go and sort of learn how to speak the language that your parents speak but you can't if you don't want to you shouldn't feel the need to but at the same time if you do want to you're not being a a weeb you're not being like a try hard I think if you can find sort of happiness in the pressure like if there's pressure to learn a language and you would enjoy learning that language that's great if you have a million other things to do and your parents really want you to learn Vietnamese I think there's a way to just deflect and pursue things that genuinely make you happy because if you kill yourself learning Vietnamese and don't enjoy it and don't see value in it and feel terrible over it, you're only going to fan the flames of feeling like you don't belong or feeling like you can't quite cross over. And I've been really fortunate. I've always grown up in a Eurasian environment. And I'm also fortunate because my parents are both Eurasian. I think that's a big difference between being like the only Eurasian in your family with a white parent and an Asian parent versus being Mm. everyone just being confused and mixed because they get it. Whereas a sort of monoracial parent might make it a bit more difficult. But if you can find a community, whether that's online, and I found like Subtle Halfy Traits is a great community on Facebook. It's a Facebook group full of like mixed race people. Um, Finding like communities in real life, there, there are more community opportunities now than before, I think. And that's a great place to feel more acceptance. And people will talk about things that you won't even have thought of as Eurasian or like mixed but then you're like oh my god that is a mixed thing like um on subtle halfy traits recently for example someone was talking about Eurasian hair and I never I thought I just had really bad hair because Eurasian hair is usually very thin and very Mm. frizzy it doesn't do humidity Mm. it's like not thick enough to be Chinese hair it's weird hair and I always just thought I had bad hair but this whole post of people complaining about the hair. And I was like, oh my God, this is a Eurasian thing. And it's just that solidarity and that validation that you can get from your phone um, because other people are, you know, in a Facebook group with you that helps a lot. So it's partially like you training yourself to do what makes you happy and it will have a knock-on effect to making everyone else around you happier. And also finding other people to tell you you're not weird or you're not alone nicely said thank you so much for this advice and your perspective because i think it will help a lot of people that are listening that may be struggling with kind of identity issue of like growing growing up in the west being asian whether or not they're mixed or just no um, asian is as a whole in terms of like oh chinese chinese or whatever it may be and thank you so much for sharing your stories your experience during your time with me and the audience and kind of educating us on like your kind of perspective on how to deal with like value your 
kind of experience with like disability and all that stuff. It was a really nice conversation. For those that want to find you, your work and all the stuff that you do, where can they find you? I'm on Instagram at Sophia Hotung. That's S-O-P-H-I-A-H-O-T-U-N-G. You could like mm-hmm. read the title of this episode to find the spelling. And I have a website, which is SophiaHotung.com. I'm on Facebook at Sophia Hotung. Perfect. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Kai. I had a great time. And I love the podcast. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you for listening to What Kind of Asian Are You podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider following the podcast on your streaming platform and also on Instagram at What Kind of Asian Pod. Again, What Kind of Asian Pod. Make sure to leave reviews and ratings as well. Again, thank you for listening and supporting. See you on the next episode of What Kind of Asian Are You podcast.